May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So I think it was about this time last year when I was on the search for air-conditioned outings, as one does during these newly tropical Portland summers, that I found myself at the Pompeii exhibit at OMSI. Perhaps some of you saw it as well. It was a breathtaking installation. At once intimate and cosmic in its scale, there were these well-preserved fragments of people's ordinary domestic lives before the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. And then there were these shocking reminders of the speed and scale of the destruction of the city Entire bodies were cast from the cavities left in the ash and lava that overcame human beings and animals. It was a carefully curated and dramatically staged exhibit designed to maximize the emotional impact of the Pompeii event. You might think of it as kind of like a 21st century expression of dwellings built to memorialize something that happened on a mountain. But for me, it actually paled in comparison to the much simpler exhibit that followed it in a hallway outside the Pompeii exhibit. It featured the active volcanoes of the Pacific Northwest, Mount Baker, Glacier Peak, Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, Mount Adams, Mount Hood, Three Sisters, rooted in the primal matter of the Earth's creation. These mountains are powerful and dangerous. That's the geography we live in, and it rightly inspires our awe. Now, not every mountain is equally awesome, though. Last week, I was traveling from a pastoral visit in Happy Valley to parts northwest and found myself driving through the Mount Tabor neighborhood, where I'd never been before. And it was intriguing to me because in the Christian tradition, Mount Tabor, Tabor is the name of the mountain, where the transfiguration occurred. So I was looking around, you know, peering around those sweet little bungalows, looking for something really dramatic, a a mountain worthy of the glory of God as Peter and James and John experienced it in our gospel reading today. And so after peering through alleys and looking here and there, I got a glimpse of that modest hill, rounded hill, gently rounded hill, that rises 400 feet above the surrounding neighborhood. Now, several residents of Mount Tabor did remind me that it's pretty beautiful up there on the top, but I do want to remind you for comparison that the biblical Mount Tabor is 1,800 feet high. Today, we heard two stories of awe-inspiring mountain events. One is, of course, about Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai, from which he returns with a face so bright that people can barely bear to look upon it. The other, about Jesus and his disciples on Mount Tabor, where the prophets Moses and Elijah appear, again in brilliant light. It's from stories like these that we get the metaphor of mountaintop experience to describe a particularly impactful spiritual encounter. And that's not just a contemporary pop spirituality expression. Throughout the Bible, 
Mountains are the places where God is revealed and worshipped. Belden Lane, who was actually here with us last year, he's the author of The Solace of Fierce Landscapes, Exploring Desert and Mountain Spirituality. He describes Christian spiritual growth as a journey from desert to mountain to cloud. Of course, he's borrowing from the geography of the Exodus and the Sinai Desert, where Moses guided those recalcitrant Hebrews for 40-some years. What mystics call the purgative way, that is, the process of letting go of the old in order to be open to a new relationship with God, is symbolized, according to Belden Lane, by the desert. It's an inner and outer landscape wherein people learn to travel lightly, consume minimally, and listen deeply. The mountain, which the ancient Hebrews and Jesus' disciples arrived at by way of desert sojourn, was the real and symbolic place of God's self-revealing. That's what Christian mystics would call the illuminative way. And it's how people encounter sacred truth. Illumination, of course, can happen anywhere on earth. It, but as we all know, it manifests with a certain kind of clarity and perspective that resembles the view from a mountaintop. That face-shining, clothing-bleaching, transfigurative glory of God does not show up exclusively on mountains and their metaphorical equivalents. But the air is thin there, and visual obstacles are few, and we all know that in some settings, it's easier to see what's already all around us. That is, to see what's hidden in plain sight. Which brings me to the third movement of spiritual growth, deepening connection to God, which the mystics call the unitive way. Now, Belden Lane uses the metaphor of the cloud for union with God, an obvious reference to the transfiguration story we just heard. So recall that after the glorious appearance of Moses and Elijah alongside Jesus, an event which Peter completely bungles by trying to turn it into an OMSI exhibit, at that point, a cloud overtakes Jesus and the disciples. From its misty interior, God speaks clearly and audibly. In the cloud metaphor, union with God is not so much about sight, that stunningly clear vision from the mountaintop, but about insight. It's the assurance of God fully present even when unseen, behind the veil of Moses, inside the cloud with Jesus, hidden within the recesses of our hearts. Today, we will baptize baby Jonah. And you'll notice that everything about the baptismal liturgy is designed to evoke a kind of mountaintop experience for him, for his family, for us. We'll make bold promises rooted in ancient revelations of God. Canon Matthew will anoint, Jonah, will anoint Jonah with oil and the skin of his face will shine like Moses's. 
so will yours if we're especially energetic with the asperges. Be ready. And then we'll all have to decide what we're going to do with this particular mountaintop experience, which, like all illuminative events, is inherently temporary. If the gospel is any guide, mountaintop clarity is usually followed by cloudy obscurity. Obscurity, lack of clarity, blurring of certainty. That's what happens within the cloud, behind the veil, and frankly, in all the ambiguity of post-mountaintop life. Now, like Peter, I'd really love to box up God's revelation in a place where I can see and admire it clearly. Maybe install Moses and Elijah and Jesus at Omsi like historical relics from another mountain. But instead, God's method seems to send disciples back down, catch them on the downslope in the obscurity, and tell them, listen to Jesus. Maybe because we hear better when we can't see. Maybe because we see better when we're using our insight. Hmm. I will confess that, at least for me, it's pretty hard to let go of the desire for clarity. I'd like my religion and my understanding of the world and its people to inhabit well-built dwellings in a landscape where there's plenty of structure and light and the boundaries are clear. It helps me to know who belongs in this neighborhood and that neighborhood. But for some reason, that doesn't seem to be God's preferred method of communicating. God may be visible from the mountaintop, but God's voice speaks to us from right in the middle of the places of ambiguity. It's from there that God calls the uncertain ones and cares for the outcast ones and enters the world through the dark of a womb and the dust of a cave. So, my friends, if things seem particularly unclear or messy in your life right now, guess what? You're in the cloud. And let me assure you that God is already fully present with you in whatever misty space of uncertainty and ambiguity you may be inhabiting right now. God is actually calling your name and inviting you to listen. That's how God does it. You may not be able or ready to hear God's voice yet, in which case, I'm guessing you probably have some desert and mountain spiritual journeying yet to do. But Jesus' story reminds us that God is already right here with us in the cloudiness of everyday existence. Our inner journeys simply serve to lead us home to where we already are, to arrive where we started, as T.S. Eliot put it in his poem, Little Gidding. Remember this? With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring, will be to arrive where we started and know the place as for the first time. Not known, because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness, 
between two waves of the sea, quick now, here now, always, a, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Amen.